am, I am the same, and I never change. And he, but the good news is, He reveals Himself to us. He doesn't just leave us in the dark. He teaches who He is, and He does so in His Word. And so we may not be carving idols from wood. We may not be carving out our own gods. We may find, but we may find ourselves conforming God to an image that our own mind makes up. Have you ever found yourself doing that with God? Like you think something about God and maybe you come to a point in your life and you realize that's really not true. And maybe you find it from God's word or you hear it from preaching or in a book that kind of uh, illuminates that for you. And you say, I haven't thought this way about God for all this time, but God says something totally different about himself. The interesting thing about the way that God introduces himself and he teaches himself to us is because he is always truth, he was always righteous, he is always holy, how he wants us to know him is exactly how he should be known. Now, if you've ever gone to buy a new car um, or buy a house or buy an appliance, you have met someone there that wants to sell you that car or appliance. And you may get to know them, but the only thing you get to know about them is what they want you to know, right? And vice versa. If you're going to meet somebody casually for a business dinner or something like that, and you exchange information back and forth, you're probably not going into the deep feelings of your heart. You're only revealing to them what you want them to know. And in a way, we may feel like God does that in His Word. Have you ever thought, well, I wonder if there's so much more to God that He hasn't told us, or if there's so much more to God that we don't understand. Maybe He's totally different than what I think of Him or what He has shown in His Word. But the truth is, God has shown us exactly what we need to know about Him. He teaches us those things. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to look at this. Uh, Philippians 2 tells us that God has given Christ a name above every name, a name which is above all names, and at that name, every knee should bow. So we're going to walk through, some of what we're going to be doing is walking through some of the names of God, some of the names that God gave to Christ or that Christ gave to Himself, and those things uh, teach us something about them. As if I were to introduce you and I say, I'm James and this is what I do for a living and uh, this is how many kids I have and I would introduce myself, I am dad, I am uh, assistant pastor, I am uh, you know, a Kentucky fan, I am this and I am that. That's who I am, that's how I introduce myself to you. Well, how does God introduce himself to us? I want you to look at Isaiah 45, if you would, and look at verse number 18. <clears throat> it says... For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he hath established it. He created it not in vain, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. It's not there in your notes tonight, but that is one of the first things that you must learn and that we must learn and understand what God is. There is no other God. There's no other form of the same God. There is no other way to connect to God except through Jesus Christ. There is no other way under heaven that you must be saved but through the name of Christ. And so when God says, I am God, there is none else. If you want to know God, this is your only option. Look at verse 19. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I said not unto the seed of Jacob. Seek ye me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare the things that are right. He just simply says, I haven't kept myself a secret. 
I didn't say it's useless for you to find out who I am. I have shown yourselves. Look at verse 20. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, ye that are escaped of the nations. They have no knowledge that set up the wood of their graven image. And pray unto a God that cannot save. Isn't that a sad picture of the world? People that want to connect to the God of the universe in some way. They may have a, just a simple feeling of a higher being, and there may be some desire, but unless we conform to God's way of knowing Him, we can't know Him. Look at verse number 21. Tell ye, and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? So it says, Who has told you about me? How have you learned about God? And his answer is, I have told you about myself. Look at verse 20, uh, end of verse 21. And there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. And it does good that those things balance together. I am just and I judge, but I also save and am merciful. There is none beside me. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. Isn't it great that that is the message of our God? Look unto me and I will crush you. Look unto me and let me show you how great I am, though he will show us that. Look unto me and I will show you how bad you are, though we will see how bad we are. Look unto me and how awful you have ruined things. That's not his message to us. Look unto me and be saved. God's reason for wanting us to know him is not because he's some sort of narcissistic being up there that just wants all the glory from some hurting, uh, weak, and empty people. It is that he wants to save and he wants to lead us into a relationship with him. There are good things found in the Lord. If you would now flip over to Acts 17. So you see God's heart in why he shows us himself. That's what we just found in Isaiah. Why does he teach himself to us. Most of these weeks, for the next few weeks, we will actually be in Isaiah. Uh, much of the prophecy, the highest amount of prophecy about Christ, at least in concentration, is in the book of Isaiah. So we're going to be looking there. How does he tell us? What does he tell us that Christ is going to be? But I want to start this kind of study or this idea from Acts 17. And this is where we'll get into your uh, notes there. I'm going to give you the spoiler. I'll give them all to you at once. Okay, so uh, don't don't. Don't tune out because you now have them all. There's some other things we'll add in here and there as we go. But if you would look at Acts 17, and to get a little bit of background, Paul is speaking at a place in Athens or in a place in Greece uh, to, uh, at a place called Mars Hill. He's speaking to Grecian people. And the Grecian people that were there had literally set up temples everywhere, all over their city, all over their culture, all over their society. This was not a place of the world where there were battles and wars going on about gods. They accepted anyone and everyone's God. If you came and you were traveling from uh, Egypt, or you were coming from Ethiopia, you were coming from Asia Minor, you were coming from Turkey, it didn't matter where you were coming from, if you brought a God with you, hey, we'll help you set up a place that you can worship Him. That's how they were so accepting of anything that they would call God. And the truth is, why? Because they had no idea who God really was. So they accepted any version of him. In fact, to the place that they had a, they had a temple or they had a monument set up, and it just said, to the unknown God. 
They said, we know there's one out there that we haven't gotten to, we've missed, and so we'll worship him here. We said, we have gods of love, gods of success, gods of food, gods of harvest, all these different gods. And he says, and I'm sure there's one that we don't know, so we'll just set up a temple to an unknown God. And Paul, look at verse 22 if you would. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. That word literally just means you're too religious. You have too many gods. You think too many th- ways. And look at verse four, 23. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. And so this is sort of the platform for which Paul is about to teach them about the real and the true God. He says, you even have an altar to a God that you don't know. And I'm going to use this opportunity to teach you about this God that you don't know. And so you think about Paul about to describe to these people who God is. What would Paul describe under the leading of God's Spirit and through God's Holy Spirit? How would God introduce himself to people? How does he do that through his word? And there's some key things and some important things that we must know so that when we speak about our God to others, when we're speaking to family, when we talk to friends, when we have discussions and co-workers at work, that we don't just talk about a God and we don't just go to a church. We believe in the God of the Bible as he has revealed himself to us. And how is that? My God is different than yours if you don't believe in the God of the Bible. I believe in the real and the true God. So what is he? If you would look in verse 24, and we'll walk through these verses one or two at a time, draw our points or our ideas from them. Look at verse 24. What is he going to teach these people? He says, Whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare unto you, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. He teaches them two key thoughts here. The first one there is God is the creator of the world. And that's a very important thing to establish. God is not just the ruler of the world, though he does rule the world. That is not the only thing that he does. You give a king a kingdom, you can take that kingdom away. You give a president an office, and eventually that office goes away or fades. You have an emperor of an empire. Someone can conquer that emperor, or he can die and leave that empire behind. But he says, I am God. I created everything. And you'll take nothing away from me, and you can add nothing to me. And that changes the way that we look at our God. That God doesn't call us to just give things or do things, because he doesn't need us to give or do anything. It is a sign of our worship. It is a sign of our submission, but God is outside of everything that we know. Think about it when you think of the first few verses of the Bible. In the beginning, God, so God was outside of time. It says, in the beginning, when time started, God was already there. So God is outside of time. In the beginning, God created the heaven, that's space, everything outside of our physical world. He created heaven and the earth, that is our physical world. So if I said, describe to me something that is not within time, it's not bound, it's not part of space, right? And it's not part of the earth. And it says that when he created man, he breathed into him the breath of life. And so describe something outside of living, breathing life, something here or something that's not described, but physical things on earth, something not in space and not bound by time. There's nothing there. 
our world, our minds are so confined by those things, we cannot be like God. We are not like God. We don't understand like God. He is outside of all of those things. So as the creator of the world, notice what he teaches them at the end of verse 24. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Think of how shocking that would have been to these people. Like, you can't put God in a building. And even today, in our church culture, sometimes we try to confine God to a building, that He moves when we're at church. And He may and He does. But it's not that He is, does something special because of the room that we're in. He does something special because of what Christ has done in our hearts in saving us. And so he says, it's not just by temples made with hands. You can't offer anything. You can't carve him. You can't make a picture of him. He is beyond what you think. Why? Because he created everything that is. He created everything you see in this auditorium. He created everything in our city, everything in our country, everything in our world, and everything in our universe. He made from nothing. No one gave anything to God at any point that he needed. He just created all things. Look at the note there that you have. It says, God the Creator cannot be contained, cannot be brought down to some manageable size. He cannot be manipulated into a form expressive of our own designs. And that's the danger sometimes when we look for a way to worship or we look for a way to please God or we look for our way to serve or whatever it may be. We can't define those things. Only God can because He is the Creator. Look at number two. It says, God sustains all things. Look at verse 25. Neither is worship with men's hands as though he needed anything. Okay, so he says, you can't give anything to me. Then look at the end of verse 25. Seeing he giveth to all, so anything that has these things, he giveth to all life and breath. So he gives you your ability to live. He gives you your ability to be able to function and exist and be. And then if that wasn't enough, look at the end of the verse. And all things. God is in control. He is over all things. He is controlling all things. He is more powerful than all things. He provides what we need. He gives us the things that we have to have for life. Have you ever thought about, okay, there, there's an element of science that helps support what God does and how He creates us in our lives, but there is also an extent of science to which we cannot keep going and explaining. You want to baffle someone, say, well, what keeps you together. Well, it's gravity, or it's this, or it's this law of nature. Yeah, yeah, but what keeps those things together? Well, it's this thing, or it's this gravitational force, or it's this amount of fusion or fission, and they start going through all these uh, different things. It's how your biology makes up, and blood works this way. Yeah, 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 but what made that start working that way? Well, it, uh, I don't know. What, what stops us from just everything from just, just falling apart? Well, he gives us the answer here, only God. Because God gives life to everything, he gives to them life, and he gives, keeps everything living. And you have a reference there, so you can look at Matthew 6, 30 and 31, talking about he gives, uh, he, he says um, that the grass is in the field one day, you crush it and you make it bread, and then you eat it the next. He says, take no thought, I can take care of you. And God says, this is nothing for me to make things, and so therefore it's nothing for me to sustain things. Well, how should that affect our lives personally? If God made you, do you think He can take care of you? The answer, of course, should be yes. When a little child is born, we would hope, at least for the most part, when a parent or a couple is competent and they are desirous to have that child, 
you would think that when they leave the hospital, you think, well, they've brought that child into the world, and now it is their job, and it's within their ability to care for that child. And there's an extent that that goes. We know that there are things beyond our control. But the same way with God in us. God created us, and now He controls, and now He takes care of us. Look at number three. God rules all nations. Look at verse 26 and 27. And hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. Now that's an important thing. He says, have made of one blood all nations. There's just two ways that you can look at this. Both would be fine and proper. He says, physically, we are all the same. They say, well, what are you? Well, I'm from Asia. I'm from Africa. I'm from Europe. I'm of European descent. I am uh, this type of heritage or this type of culture. I'm from this type of race. But yeah, yeah, what are you? Well, I am a human. Because there's only so far that our differences can break down. We are all humans, created body, soul, heart, spirit, mind, in the image of God. And he says, God has created all men, and though there are nations, though there are differences, all men are of the same blood. And then he's done the same thing through Christ. He says, Jew, Greek, Gentile, doesn't matter. Spiritually, you are all made one through Christ. And then notice he says... And hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. He decides how far nations go. He decides, and doesn't it think, well, this nation, I, I like to contemplate, I like to com- contemplate weird things uh, sometimes. Maybe you'd call me morbid uh, or something like that. But I'm kind of like, what would it take for like a society to just fall apart? Uh, like, what would it take for a nation to just like stop existing? And hopefully we wouldn't want to think that about our own country, right? You know, um, but in, it, let's just use our country for an example. We've been here the grand total, if you want to go back to colonies and, uh, you know, our establishments here in our country. We've been here this grand, super long total of, you know, 400 years. What's going to stop us now? Well, the Roman Empire thought the same thing. The Greek Empire thought the same thing. England thought the same thing. Uh, China, China, their emperor, they thought the same thing. There were empires that went for thousands of years and then poof, they're just gone. And what is it that keeps all of those things functioning? What is it that keeps a nation a nation? Well, there's politics and there's warfare. And of course, there are all of those things. But if you look at what it says at the end of the verse, he keeps it very simple for us. He says, he, God, determines the times before appointed and the bounds of their head. God decides. How long a country is going to be there? How long a nation is useful? Where they will stretch? How they will rule? Think about the spread of the gospel across the earth and the empires or the nations that God has used to do it. He used the Roman Empire to push certain things across our world in Christianity. He used England to spread certain things all across our nation. And the gospel went to areas it had never been. He's used America to do that. And now he's using different countries as far as into Asia to spread all throughout areas of the world where the gospel has never been. Why? Because God is in control. Notice that it says at the end of your point there, what a merciful God that has put you in a certain place at a certain time in a moment of history in the hope that you might seek him and that you might reach out for him and that you might find him. You say, well, where do you get that? Look at verse 27. Why does God control the nations? Why does he decide when they, when they uh, exist? Why does he decide where they exist? Look at verse 27, what we just described. That they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. He's telling these people, look, he's speaking to people in Greece that are now under the control of Romans, and they knew their history. 
they knew that at one point Greece ruled the world. Okay, it'd be like if we lived long enough somehow to see if America ever wasn't the superpower of the world and you could remember it, you live long enough to remember it. That's kind of the way that they would feel at this point. They have heard the stories when Greece ruled all and Paul says to them, hey, those things come and go. Why does God let them come and go? Well, he gives them a great answer. He says, so that you could get the gospel, so that you could seek after Christ. Why does God allow things to happen the way he does in the world? So that his word can be proclaimed, so that the gospel can be spread. And it's an encouraging thing when you think about the fact that God of the ruler, the God as the ruler of nations, wants men and women to seek and reach for him. He's a merciful God. He doesn't want to be separated. He wants to be joined to those that he created. Look at the last couple here and we'll be finished. Look at number four. God is not just the creator of all things. He doesn't just sustain all things. He doesn't just rule all nations. He's the father of all humanity. Now, notice how he started. He says he, cre- <coughs> he created you. He keeps you alive. He rules over you. So that's a good thing. He kind of distances God from them as he speaks, though. He's a creator. That feels very distant. He's the sustainer. That's a little bit more personal, but still, I don't get how it works. Then he says he's the ruler of all nations. Well, now he feels super far away. But look at verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. So he says he uses them as an example. Look at verse 29. For as much then as we are the offspring, we are the children, we are the creator, creation of God, we ought not to think of uh, think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. He says, we're not, God is not this far off being. He's not a, a statue. He's, not a He's a father. And so see what he did there? He says, God is big. He creates all. God is powerful. He sustains everything. God rules over all, but he will be a father to you if you'll establish a relationship with him through the gospel. God created us in his image. That's why we have this general sense sometimes of right and wrong. That's why we have this moral code, even though we're not even sure where it all comes from. It says, when you think about that, it is absurd then to create many gods, substitute gods, and whereby we endeavor to localize or dethrone God when he wants to be a father to us. And then look at the last one. He doesn't let them off the hook and just say, God wants to be your father. He says, finally, God is also the judge of all things. Look at verse number 30. In the times of this ignorance, God winked at. So now he kind of lays it on the line for him. Look, you may not have known about this God, but he created you. He sustains you. He rules over you. He will be a father to you. But there's coming a day, he says, when he will judge you as well. He says, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. So what do all these things combine to do in our lives? This should change the way we live, but how? If God is my creator, then I should automatically want to submit to him and do his will. If God is my sustainer, then I should trust him for the things that I need each day and that I need long term. 
if God rules over my nation, it should cause me to have faith in him and a security in him. And I don't have this anxiousness that maybe other people do. Uh, it, it will take away some of the anxiety when my group or my thought process or my opinion is not winning the battle. It will take the nerves away from that because God controls all things. And then if he's my father, it means he's personal with me. It means that other people's opinions don't really matter. I was thinking about my own dad and just different times. I've been kind of reflecting on him for, throughout the last uh, few weeks. And uh, I was thinking back just different ways that my relationship with him went and connected. And uh, there's one particular way that he would always come to all of, all of our sports games and soccer and basketball and whatever we were doing at the time and he would always come and and you know things sometimes in sports can get heated or exciting or uh, nerve-wracking or disappointing you know there's a lot of things that can come and a lot of emotions that can come from that and he always had this thing that he did every now and then coming out of like a timeout or uh, you know in a in a crucial moment in a game or whatever it may be the play would stop or there would be a foul or different things I always kind of knew where he was in the stands and you could always just kind of glance his way. And he wouldn't, oh, he wouldn't really yell. Sometimes he would yell things, but he wouldn't really yell anything to you. He wouldn't really say anything. He just kind of did this thing where he would just put his fist up. And he'd say, he just kind of barely have the tip of his thumb. He'd say, like, you're fine, you're fine. Just a way to settle. And all of a sudden, everything else in that gym would just kind of, just kind of go away for a moment. No matter who was screaming, who was yelling, no matter what was on the scoreboard, you had his approval. And so it was fine. And so the same thing is true of our God, our Heavenly Father. Life is chaotic sometimes. Life is bizarre. But when we look to His Word, we will see God give us that thumb or that fist or that hand or that embrace of approval. And all of a sudden, all the other things in life just kind of melt away. And if our God is that loving, we should want others to know about Him. Why? Because that final point, God is still going to be the judge of all of the earth. And there are people in this world and people that we work with, people that we go to school with, people that our children go to school with, their parents. There are people that live across the street. There are people that we interact with every day that have no idea any of these things are true about this one true God. And they definitely don't know that one day they're going to be held accountable because God has commanded all people to repent. And how awful would it be for me to know God in this way? and have no intention of making him known to others in this way. That's the challenge of really knowing God. What should it do? When we really know God, it should not make us prideful. It should not make us feel like we're better than others. It doesn't make us feel like we've got everything right and everything's fine for me. And though there is comfort to God and a relationship with him, there's also a challenge from knowing God in our relationship with him. And that is that there are 8 billion people. You think about how many people are in this world. I think when I went to college, we did some different research things and uh, different things. I went to college ooh, 10, we got married 11 years ago, so 14, carry the one, I don't know, 14, 15 years ago, 15 years ago or so, there was just over 7 billion people in the world about 14, 15 years ago. There's 8 billion people in the world now. That's incredible. You think 14, 15 more years from now, 
it's exponentially could grow unless something drastic happens and the Lord changes the world that we live on. You're talking, Tim, and more than half of those people have no idea, have never heard the gospel in a clear, presented way. There are people in our communities that know nothing of our God. And one day we will stand before God who will judge Christians alike and look at Him knowing He's going to judge others for their, for their sins for eternity. And we didn't do anything to communicate who He was. And so knowing God is great. Teaching and telling and embracing a relationship with God in a way that others know is even better.